We're going to come to the Lord's table, and as we do so, we partake of bread. We partake of bread and cup, which is a reminder to us of Christ's death for us. Uh, We pray here, give us this day our daily bread, our daily bread. Jesus also reminded us what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, by physical bread. It's wonderful to have all the food that we can eat and everything that we need. But without the Word of God and Christ dying for our sin, you know, we would be left to perish spiritually forever. So God intervened and not only blesses us with daily bread for physical food, He has intervened into our lives to bless us with spiritual food. Jesus Christ, that through Him and through His life, through His death, We could be reunited with God and made right with Him. And so as we come to the table this morning, let's remind ourselves of that. Let's join our hearts together in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today. We are grateful for the opportunity to worship you, to celebrate together, uh, Lord Jesus, what you did for us upon the cross. And as we celebrate your table today, I pray that, Lord, you would help us as we reflect that we would enter into a heart of worship and praise thankful for that which you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table, I'd like you just to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're studying um, Christian liberty in the book of Romans. We're now in chapter 14, and we'll be picking up with that study. A parallel passage to Romans 14 is 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Uh, We'll talk about this subject of meat sacrificed to idols. We'll talk about idolatry and how all those things related to the conscience of the believer in the ancient world and how that relates to us today. One of the things that we'll study today is that the ancient world was a pagan, idolatrous place. They were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. It was only the Jewish people who worshipped the one true God, and then through Judaism comes to us Jesus Christ, and uh, we worship God through Christ, the one true God. There are not many gods. But humanity has, for most of human history, been saturated with pagan idolatry. And in the early church, many people were saved out of these polytheistic religions where they worshipped idols. Paul is talking to those people and he reminds them of some things in 1 Corinthians 10 that are applicable to us as we think about the table. He says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The only other thing in Scripture he tells us to flee from as a thing is sexual immorality. Flee from it. He says, flee, run from idolatry. I speak to you as though you are sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. And then he talks about the table. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we are breaking? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But what am I implying? I am implying that the pagans that sacrifice, those sacrifices, they are offering to demons. Even though they don't know it, he's saying that behind idolatry, behind these false gods, there is demonic hosts that bind people. They're not sacrificing them to God. And so what does he say? I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Why? Because our God is a jealous God. He demands that we worship Him and Him alone. And no idol. So as we come to the table, we need to examine ourselves routinely. You know, we maybe don't have pagan festivals like they did in the ancient world with polytheism, but there are things a part of our culture and our lives that are nevertheless fronts for demonic activity and demonic hosts. And the Christian is bound by our obligation to our relationship with Christ to come out of those things. We cannot participate in the table of demons, the table of the Lord. It's one or the other. And so we examine ourselves before the Lord as we come. And as we study this subject, as we go deeper into it today, I just pray the Holy Spirit will draw us all into a sense of a worship of God. And what God demands of us is that He is the one true God, and He wants us to worship Him and Him alone. And uh, that's why we gather together today. And so as we come to the table, as Shirley's playing, I just invite you to come. Um, you, you may want to come as a representative of a family or however you want to do it as, as, as individuals come. Take from the plates that are at the front. I think there's some plates at the back as well. And then after a few moments of reflection, we will partake together. So, uh, Shirley, if you would play, and then we will partake. Take your Bibles and go with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, that you get there, and we're just going to open in order of prayer. Father, I thank you that we can gather in your presence today. Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word that when two or three gather in your name, you are in their midst. We thank you that you are here with us, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that during this time of worship, as we have sung and now as we study, that for us, heaven and earth would become one. That, Father, this would be time well spent in our life. That in this time, Holy Spirit, you would advance us in grace.
love for one another, love for you. Lord, you tell us in your word through Peter that we are to grow in grace and in knowledge. I pray that, Lord, today we would grow in knowledge, we would learn things, and that through that knowledge, grace would become more real in our life through Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we ask you, we pray that, Lord, you, Holy Spirit, would teach us today. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are talking about Christian liberty Uh, We've jumped into this in Romans chapter 14, begins in Romans chapter 14, it goes through chapter 15, verse 7. Last week we did an introductory to the whole thing, we kind of laid out the structure of the entire passage, looking at each paragraph, and kind of like the topic sentence for what's going on in each paragraph. Today I have two things that I want us to think about specifically as once again we do some introductory work. We're going to be in the text, but we're doing a lot of introductory work on the concept of Christian liberty. And there are two things that I really want you to get today. The first one is I want us to understand the cultural context in which this was written. And I want us to then try to transfer that a little bit into our culture, although we'll do that more in depth in weeks to come. But we've got to understand the culture in which these people lived. What was going on in their life when Paul penned these words through the Holy Spirit? The second thing that I want us to wrestle with is the concept of necessity. What is necessary? And I'll look at that. We'll look at that together in Acts 15. It's a very important concept And we make sure we understand as Christians when we think about the concept of liberty and Christian liberty. I want to begin with a quote. This quote is by a guy named Eric Raymond. And um, it is an excellent article that he wrote on the subject of Christian liberty. And I want us to think about what he says here. He says, Christians have Christian liberty. Let's stop with that. Now there again, I want you to remember this phrase or this, this little Two words, Christian liberty, liberty being the noun, Christian the adjective, is not actually in the text that we are studying. It's not in Romans chapter 14 and 15. There's nowhere where Paul uses the phrase Christian liberty. Nevertheless, what we're talking about when we talk about Christian liberty is in this passage and in many others in the New Testament. And we are basically talking about this concept that Eric explains When we think about Christian liberty, this is what it means. We have freedom in Christ to enjoy many created things. And I want you to notice this. Number one, without fear of condemnation. We understand that created things can neither commend us to God nor condemn us before God. Paul uses those two words. We are not commended to God nor condemned if we eat or we don't. So created things can neither commend us nor condemn us before God. Therefore, as Christians, we have the privilege of freedom to enjoy various aspects of creation without fear of judgment. 
And then he goes into this flip side of the equation that we also have to develop as we study this. There's another side to this freedom. And that is the freedom to set aside our freedom for the sake of the gospel. What does that mean? Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I have not used my right. And the reason I have not used my right, my freedom, is because in all things, I want to do everything that I possibly can to win as many to Christ as is possible. And Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 9. So there's two sides to this coin. One is, as Christians, we have liberty in Christ to enjoy aspects of creation, the things that God has created. It tells us in Scripture, He has created them for us to enjoy them and to do so freely. Other side of the coin is if meat will make my brother stumble, then I will not eat meat ever again. In other words, Paul is saying, I will restrict for the gospel and for the glory of Christ my freedom when it is advantageous in order for me to build my testimony so that I do not undermine the gospel of Christ. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Christian liberty. I want you to think about something at the onset of this. My relationship with God through Scripture is to regulate every aspect of my life. Jesus Christ saved me to be my Lord. He wants to govern what I do and what I think, what I believe. It is so easy for us as Christians to compartmentalize our lives to where we kind of have this little nook and cranny of our life that is like the sacred part of our life. It's what we do in our morning disciplines when we read the Bible and we pray, and then we go out into everyday life. It's what we do when we go to church. It's what we do when we go to small group. And there we kind of turn on the religion side of my life. And then the rest of my life is just life. We see in these verses, Paul is telling us, he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether therefore you eat or you drink. What can be more mundane than eating and drinking? Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do everything. To what? The glory of God. My relationship with God through God's word is to regulate every aspect of my life. When we talk about Christian liberty, we're going to talk about fine points of application sometimes of the way we live. We talk about things that we are free to do, things that we can't do, whatever. But at the end of the day, the driving question 
that should permeate the heart of every one of us is this question. Is my life being lived to the glory of God? Can I do this thing that I am about to do and know that in doing it, Jesus Christ will be glorified? If not, that's the end of the question. That's really what it comes down to. Let's think about the cultural context here. I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 14. Let's read the first four verses. And let's try to step into this world for a couple of minutes. In verse 1, he says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, and we'll talk about what that means to be weak in faith next week. No, we won't. Not next week because Dean Loftus will be with us. So in two weeks, we'll talk about what it means to be weak and strong in the faith. But he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And we talked about that, welcoming him, receive him, bring him into the fellowship. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. And I want you to notice the word opinions. Opinions. One person, and then he gives us an illustration of an opinion. One person believes he may eat anything. He's telling us here, in the category of opinions, is what? Eating anything. Now, he's writing to New Covenant, New Testament Christians. That is in the opinion category for them. Go back about 40 years in the past. Was it in the opinion column for the Jew? It was not. It was in the what? Necessity column. Necessity column. In the New Age of the church, not the New Age movement, the New Age of the church, get my words right here, God has moved the eating of food from the column of necessity into the column of what is an opinion. So he says, this individual who is weak in the faith eats only vegetables. Now, is there anything in the Old Testament that commands only the eating of vegetables? Only for a very limited period of time. And that is from creation to Noah. That's the only time. After that, they're free to eat meat. In the Mosaic Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, they could only eat clean meat. And you remember the restrictions on that. We won't go through that this morning. Clean meat. So what is he talking about with vegetables here? Someone who's a vegetarian. The only place you'll find that is a guy named Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. A man who eats only vegetables to keep from eating the meat of the king that was sacrificed to pagan deities. 
Okay? It would seem that there are Roman Christians who have read the book of Daniel and from the book of Daniel are applying Daniel's logic concerning not being defiled by the king's meat to the issue that they are dealing with. So there are Roman Christians who are only eating vegetables. It's not that they're just eating clean meat. It's that they're only eating vegetables. Let's continue. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master. He stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems every day alike. Let me ask you again. In the Old Covenant, where did days fall? Is it in the opinion column or the necessity column? For God's people. Necessity. God has shifted it, and he said now it's in the opinion column. God did the shift. Now, let's stop with the text and let's think about the culture. The first thing that is true in the culture that creates a lot of struggle in the early church is when Jesus left the earth, he leaves about 120 followers. And what is true about every one of them? They are from what nation? The Jewish nation. He tells them, you are to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. You are to baptize them and bring them into the church. But there is still this huge struggle in the first hundred years of church history between warring factions within the church because of the Gentiles coming into the church. There are many in the church who are supposing that the church will continue as just an offshoot of Judaism. And the Holy Spirit is going to say, no, that's not the case. This creates part of the context in which these people live. The second thing is this the polytheistic idolatry of the Roman world. The only people in the ancient world who were monotheistic were the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall have no gods before me, They are monotheistic. Every other nation on the planet in the ancient world was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods, and they did so on many occasions. Certain people would be devoted to one of those gods, but they would still believe that there were many gods that were at work in the world. And so the polytheism of the ancient world directly affects what's going on in this context. It's very important we understand that. So, in that concept, 
For each of the idols in the ancient world, in the Roman world, there would be huge festivals. They would have holidays. One of the biggest was to the god of wine. His name was Bacchus. be a seven-day feast, and the wine would flow, and it was a good time. And everybody in the city participated. And now you've been saved. And you've been saved out of that life. What do you do when the festival to Bacchus comes around? One of the things that you will note as we study idolatry, is every time there's this link between idolatry and sexual immorality. You know, well, you'll really note this in some texts we come to later. But in this worship of all of these deities in the ancient world, there was this hyper on steroids erotic environment. And there would be scantily clad women serving food. There would be music. And there would be merriment. And the wine would flow. And inhibitions would go down. And sexual immorality would flourish. The two went hand in hand. And you'll notice the link between idolatry and sexual immorality. This thing of polyistic idolatry heavily controls the context of what we're talking about. How about our context? What is particularly true of our cultural context? The Gentiles have been in the church for a long time. That's not a big deal to us, right? Us Gentiles, we've been a part of it now for 2,000 years. We kind of got over that battle. We don't have so much polytheistic idolatry, not in the way they did in the ancient world. So what are the issues that we face? Let's think about our culture. We live in the culture of American evangelicalism. American evangelicalism is probably a lot like, I don't want to say it's completely parable or related to Old Testament Judaism, it's not. But just as Old Testament Jews were raised in that faith, and they had all of these suppositions because of that faith, they kind of had a worldview that was built around Judaism. So to American evangelicalism, which a lot of us were born and raised in, we kind of have all these presuppositions that govern the way we think, the way we order our lives, And what we do and the way we think is almost diametrically opposed to the way the rest of the world does things and thinks. And so there's this clash. And so we're kind of in American evangelicalism. And then you have, in America, you have this increasing secular humanism. And so people out there in the culture... You know, they don't know the Bible. They don't know about Jesus. They've heard of him. They know what Christmas is. They know what Easter is. It's a time to think about the Easter bunny and and all those kind of things and to give away baskets. And, oh, yeah, Jesus did something on Easter. I don't really know what it was. But they're just completely secular. And then God goes to work in their heart and they get saved. 
And they're born again and they begin to come into a church and they're like, man, this is like a completely different world. How do I relate to this stuff? And they have a completely different set of presuppositions and a different conscience. Expressive individualism. Big phrase. Basically, it just means we live in a day when I'm going to express my own opinion and I'm going to be who I am. And don't you tell me not to be. It's a very anti-authoritarian age in which we live. And then on top of it, you have the basic driving religion of America being therapeutic theism. It's a phrase that was coined by a guy named George Barna. Basically, after doing a lot of research, he said people in our culture look at God as the big therapist in the sky. He is there to fix all my problems and to meet all my needs. And that's the way they view religion. Heavily affects the way we think. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 15. And I think those driving presuppositions that people have, you know, I have a set of presuppositions about the world because I was raised in the church. I was raised in Christianity. And a lot of times my thinking is different than people who are new to Christ, who never heard the name of Christ hardly, who went to a school where they never studied anything about the Bible and probably just heard that everything in the Bible was a myth and a fairy tale. And then they come to faith and they've got to work through a lot of issues. And we've got to learn how to work through those issues in the context of a local church. Now, this is something Kevin DeYoung said, and I think it's important we think about meat, because we're talking about meat. This is something that we need to realize, and I mentioned it briefly. Red meat was a relative rarity in the ancient world. You know, man, we think we died if we don't either have a hamburger or a steak, right? I mean, that's a part of every meal. In the ancient world, it wasn't. Red meat was a relative rarity in the ancient world. Not everyone had herds. So red meat was often eaten only as a part of ritual worship. You would offer your meal, and in some cases your drink, to the God, and then you would enjoy your feast. As a result, worship took on a party atmosphere filled with gluttony and drunkenness. So because in the ancient world there was no refrigeration, there was no way to preserve meat, if you killed a cow, the whole thing had to be ate. So it led to festivals and feasts because the whole thing had to be consumed. So people would eat fish or birds, but red meat was a relative rarity. So when we're talking about the eating of meat, it is inextricably linked to festival and feast in the mind of these people. That forms the cultural context. Relevant scriptures here, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Acts 15, Acts 10, Mark 7. I want you to go to Acts 15. You say, why are we going to Acts 15 when we're talking about Christian liberty? You'll see. Acts 15 is a very, very, and I'll say it one more time, very important chapter in the Bible. In Acts 15, we have the first non-denominational universal church council deciding an issue for everybody. They are going to weigh evidence 
and they are going to come to a conclusion, and they are going to say, based on their conclusion, this is what God Almighty wants us to do. This is the Holy Spirit's will. The issue is how do Gentiles relate to the Old Testament law? It is related to both Mark 7 and Acts 10. Mark 7 is a passage where Jesus teaches you cannot be defiled by what you eat. What defiles a man is not what goes in your mouth, it's what's in your heart. Okay, because what goes in your mouth only goes through you and comes out the other end. What's in your heart is what defiles a man. Jesus teaches that in Mark 7. In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of a man named Cornelius. He is the first Gentile we have record of who was born again. He is a Roman. Peter has a vision. And in that vision, God tells him to rise and eat everything that is in this sheet. And in this sheet, he sees animals, both clean and unclean. And he rightly ascertains that God is changing the way the Jewish people relate to the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament. The book goes on. The Apostle Paul goes out on his missionary journeys. Acts 15 is also alluded to in Galatians chapter 2, although we don't have time to do that this morning. This is the first church council to settle a a doctrinal dispute, and here's the dispute. I want you to look at verse 1, and I want you to look at verse 5. Some men came down from Judea to the city of Antioch in Syria, and they were teaching the church Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Look at verse 5. Let's start in verse 4. Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to settle this issue. When they come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. You see that? Just what we saw in chapter 14. We were to welcome. They were welcomed by the church. The apostles and the elders... And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Notice that some Pharisees have become Christians, but they're still struggling. And they rise up and they say this. And I want you to notice this phrase. It's one Greek word. It is necessary. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The Pharisees and the Judaizers from the Jerusalem region that have gone out and are trying to do missionary work are teaching people, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless you keep the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Paul is having a huge problem with this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He goes to Jerusalem and they're going to settle this issue. I imagine there were some pretty tense moments in that council. 
Pharisees are standing up and arguing. Apostles and elders are listening. And Paul and Barnabas is defending the truth. Now, Peter then makes an argument in verses 6 through 10 based on his experience at Joppa from Acts chapter 10. He says, look, this is what happened. I had this vision, a sheet let down, Cornelius is saved. He appeals to that experience. And he says, look, when God gave that experience, he gave those first Gentiles the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. And he did not require them to be circumcised. Therefore, it is not necessary. That's the core of Peter's argument. The next thing is this. Paul and Barnabas give their personal experience in verse 12. And then James draws some conclusions. And then there is a letter that is written from the church to all the churches. It's given to us in this chapter. For time, we're not going to read the whole chapter. And you all just breathe the sigh of relief. But this is what the letter says. Number one, here's the summary. In this letter from the church at Jerusalem, when they wrestle this out, they come to this conclusion. Number one, they say, Gentiles abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Number two, they say, abstain from eating blood. Now, that does not mean you can't have your steak rare. That's not what it means. This one is directly linked to our next one, which is this. Abstain from what has been strangled. When an animal is strangled to death, not to give you too much information, it does not bleed out. Its blood stays in its carcass. When an animal is killed with a gun or with a knife, its throat is cut, its heart is still pumping, which causes all of the blood that is available, because it has not congealed, to be quickly pumped out of its body. The life is in the blood. It tells us that in the scripture. So, he says, don't strangle an animal to kill it. Don't eat its blood. These two are inextricably linked. You see how. So number one, he says, abstain what's sacrificed to idols. Abstain from eating blood. Three, abstain from what has been strangled. And then he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that only makes sense. That's everywhere in the Bible. Why is he linking that? Because, as I said, the festivals of these idols were directly related to sexually immoral behavior. That's why. And then they say this, other than that, we're going to put no burden on you. We're going to put no other burden on you. Then they say why. In verse 21, because Moses has in every city, boy, I really screwed up the writing of that. For Moses has in every city those who proclaim him. So what? He's saying, out of deference to Jewish conscience, 
you are to do these four things. Directly what we're seeing in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Tied to a conscience issue, not necessity. Saying, these things are not necessary to salvation, but you are to do them for what? Deference to Jewish conscience. Now, having said that, Jesus places his stamp of approval on their finding. You know how he does it? There's a man named John. He is on the island of Patmos. He is there for the testimony of the Lord. Jesus meets him in his glorified condition. And at the beginning of that revelation, he talks to him about seven churches in Asia. One of those churches is the church at Pergamum. He says to them, I have some things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who is that guy? Old Testament guy that something talked to him. Remember? A donkey. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. And how did he do it? He taught them to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality in the same way you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So once you see that Jesus talking to the church of Pergamum and he said, what they decided in Jerusalem, that was from the Holy Spirit. Knock it off. You're sinning against me, and if you don't repent, I'm going to come, and I'm going to knock it off. So Jesus is putting a stamp of approval on what is said here. Now, keep going with me. So what is necessary? This is really important. This is going to be like two-thirds of my sermon, and it has to be in four minutes. So hold on. What is necessary? What is indifferent? How do we know the difference? Okay. Categories of necessity. Stick with me. The matters where Christians may safely agree to disagree have traditionally been labeled by the Scripture with this Greek word, adiaphora, which means things that are indifferent. Things that are indifferent. Okay, that's the way we're going to think about it. Now, let's just keep going real quick. So, what we're going to see in Scripture... There's two columns. I mentioned those columns. There are things that are necessary. Okay? You can't get it wrong. If you get it wrong, you are duck out of luck. It is necessary. Not every way leads to heaven, my friend. There's only one way. There are things that are necessary. We better get it right. But there are things that are indifferent. You know what? Sad to say, we Christians get a whole lot more jazzed out about the things that are indifferent than the things that are necessary. Many times. Now, the fact that something is adiaphora or indifferent does not mean, number one, that it's unimportant. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. It just means it's not necessary. It is important. We'll see that in this passage. The fact that something is indifferent does not mean, or in the case of necessity, that it's undisputed. In other words, 
there are things in the necessity column that Christian Christendom argues about. It does not mean it's undisputed. People wrestle with whether or not Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. I'm going to submit to you, though, that issue, although disputed by people, is necessary. It is necessary. So just because something is indifferent or necessity doesn't mean that it's settled. Okay, that's not what it means. Third thing is this. It does not mean that a local church does not define its position. Okay, let's just mention one thing real quick. I don't got much time. Think of something like music. There's a lot of freedom on music, right? Just a lot of freedom. There's not one just style of music that just this is what glorifies God and this one doesn't. No, there's a lot of freedom. But you know, for just harmony in the body and whatever, a church is just going to say, well, this is just kind of what we do. It's just who we are. But we recognize it's not in the column of necessity. It's not like if you don't believe this kind of music is the only kind of music, you're on your way to hell. No, it's not that, right? You understand that. But a local church can still decide and say, this is just what we do. It doesn't mean that everybody else is wrong. It's just, this is what we do. Does that make sense? Okay. The challenge of cultural switching. Okay, so we got these two columns, indifferent and necessity. It is so interesting to study church history. And to think about how we'll take an issue. I'll just mention two real quick. Let's just take this one. Smoking. There was a time in church history, man. If you did that, that was a sin. Right? Now, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying, I mean, it was like, for a lot of years in American evangelical, it was like immovable here. But then, for a lot of time, it was over here. So, guys like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, what caused Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually to quit smoking cigars, he probably would have been a really good friend with Rush Limbaugh, because he liked to smoke cigars. And what caused Charles Spurgeon to quit smoking cigars was he saw an advertisement with a picture of himself with a cigar, and it said, smoke the brand that Spurgeon likes. And he thought, wow, I don't know if I want everybody doing that. He was asked once by another Christian, how do you know when you're smoking too much? And he said, when I find that I have two cigars lit at the same time. (laughs) So at one time, it was like, well, that was indifferent. And then it got moved over here. And now we've got an issue like marijuana. Where is that? Is that necessarily a sin? Or is it? Indifferent. You know, so now, here's the one that D.A. Carson dealt with. And then I got to shut up and quit. The one that's switching in American evangelicalism today. You know what it is? It's not smoking, it's not marijuana, it's not music. It's homosexual marriage. Is it necessary? Is it indifferent? What do you think? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
You cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven and embrace and practice the lifestyle of homosexuality. You cannot. So when the church takes what God says is a necessity, you cannot practice this and do this and be good with me. And the church moves it over here. We're in the place of Pergamum. But the church is doing that right now on this issue. It's making it an issue of Christian liberty. What is necessary? Paul says one thing. Look at verse 11 in this chapter. In verse 10 he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God at the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. What's necessary? Faith and grace. But there are necessary fruits of faith and grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is necessary to believe in the resurrection. There are necessities. You can't just say, We are saved by faith. What faith? What do you believe? There are necessary things. i got to quit. Close with me in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Holy Spirit, teach us from your word. We come back to this. We talk about being weak or strong in the faith. Give us wisdom and give us insight. Lord, we want to please you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?
to find you in the place your glory dwells. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day Through the living word of God, Lord, today as we reflected and thought about this issue of food, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would follow you, Lord, that we would reflect on your word and how we are to be obedient to it. Lord, we pray that we would honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.